Good morning. This is the International Power Hour. This is Cliff Staten. I'm Professor of Political Science and International Studies, and I'm with my co-host Gene Abishire, also Professor of Political Science and International Studies. And we're coming to you from Indiana University Southeast, where it is we have six to eight inches of snow. And actually, we're coming to you from a remote location as they closed campus today. We're also, I'm very, very pleased today uh, to have one of my closest friends from graduate school and over the years, Mr. George Aldrich. George is coming to us from Luxembourg, actually. So he, we're at several different locations here, and I'm hoping that uh, we sound okay to everyone this morning. Uh, let me uh, introduce George just briefly. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the State Department, and George is a retired Foreign Service officer. He served uh, in the Foreign Service from June 1990 to mid-October 2017. Overseas, he served at diplomatic missions in Jamaica, Denmark, Ethiopia, Belize, Morocco, Kenya, Tunisia, Sudan, and Lebanon. Within the State Department, he was staff assistant in the Bureau of African Affairs and program officer for the Palestinian refugees in the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. While on order departure from Tunisia, he was in the temporary Maghreb watcher. He was the temporary Maghreb off watcher in the Office of International Labor, Labor Affairs. During his career, he earned three superior honor awards and eight meritorious honor awards. Welcome, George. Welcome Thank to our you. show. It's uh, great to be with uh, you and all the wonderful folks in southern Indiana and northern Kentucky. Uh, looking forward to getting back to the Ohio Valley sometime. That would be great. I hope you don't have snow in Luxembourg, do you? Well, uh, here, as you might expect, uh, there, there is a lot of concern about climate change, but uh, not anywhere near as bad as when I was in Kenya and in North Africa. Um, uh, whether one agrees with the current administration or not, something is definitely happening. And uh, um, I know our USAID officers in particular are worried that uh, the Sahel and the Sahara is going to continue to expand. Uh, as you and other folks in Southern Indiana probably are aware, there's a terrible water shortage right now in Cape Town, in uh, South Africa. But this is reflective uh, of a concern that uh, is really um, uh, acerbating some of the conflicts, uh, conflicts in Sudan and Southern Sudan, the conflict in Syria. Some of it is related to uh, the shortage of water and uh, disputes between pastoralists and farmers. That's interesting. That's interesting. We've, uh, of course, um, the whole issue of climate change, we know that the military has, uh, has looked at climate change from a security perspective. And the, let me kind of back, back up just a little bit, George. We're, the focus today is, 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 and Gene, pop in here anytime, please, okay? Yep. Is, is I'm here. on the State <laughs> Department. We probably have several, I know we have several students that would love to serve at the State Department as a career. Perhaps maybe just a general question, and, and I, I do want to come back to the environment because that's important, George. Uh, is that uh, why, why is this 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 uh, department state department why is that necessary why is it important why should americans be concerned well the the simple answer is number one uh when you and other family members and students go overseas the state department is the one that processes uh, your passports uh and uh, puts out travel notices uh, uh 
with respect to travel, whether to a, a, a super safe country like Japan or a popular place like Israel, Palestine, or a more worrisome place like uh, Congo. Um, uh, we, uh, our consular officers uh, help, their first and foremost duty is to help American citizens if they fall ill, if they are robbed or uh, uh, injured. Uh, when I was in Belize, I, I hate to say this, but one of the toughest aspects of being a duty officer there is we had a lot of drowning deaths. And one aspect of my job was to call family members back in the States to give them the bad news that a loved one had passed away, typically drowning, and to start working with uh, the morticians to uh, get the remains back to the loved ones in the States. So something so basic as providing travel advice to uh, a more critical concern about helping Americans when they're in need uh, to a sadder situation of when there's loss of life of an American and getting that person or family members back to the States. So let's say someone is, say, traveling abroad and for whatever reason needs to needs to uh, contact someone at the embassy, say, I don't know, in Belize. How would they go about doing that? Well, it's really pretty simple. Uh, all the embassies and consulates have websites which should offer the uh, hours of operation when uh, American when when the embassy is focused on providing assistance to Americans specifically. And unfortunately, Cliff, since 9-11, our embassies have been, uh, in some aspects, uh, a bit of fortresses. And so even if you and students were coming from uh, uh, Indiana Southeast to come and see me, uh, whether in Beirut or in Morocco, I would actually have to get everyone's names and their nationalities and oftentimes their passport numbers uh, way ahead of time to inform our security officers that Dr. Cliff Staten uh, and a delegation of students from Indiana Southeast is coming uh, to visit with members of the mission to get a briefing on political and economic concerns or, or relations between, let's say, Morocco and the United States or Morocco and Indiana. Um, so I, I would have to say or, or advise people that um, the, the kind of open service that we had be before 9-11 no longer exists. It's, it's so that, much that, more bureaucratic. That's one example of a dramatic change that, that was brought about by 9-11 then, obviously. So um, what if there's an emergency, actually? We sometimes see, and obviously the State Department issues travel warnings to give people a heads up that, uh, you know, things could be going on in a country and it's best avoided. But sometimes things happen quickly or sometimes if, um, you know, there's aid workers or something in a, still in a country, even if things are, are looking precarious. What if there's an emergency? Um, you know, uh, people think of U.S. embassies and consulates as being a safe haven in an emergency. Um, how does that work? I understand the normal procedures um, in the context of, you know, providing standard security, but are things different in the case of, of a critical situation? That's, that's a very tough question to answer. Um, in an emergency, uh, the embassy has a, a, an officer called the duty officer, and he or she is on call uh, throughout the week 24-7. Now, that individual then would, depending on the circumstances, try to help the American or Americans involved. But some of it gets really difficult. And I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. When Hurricane Mitch hit Belize, we had a lot of uh, American medical students on one of the offshore keys. 
And yeah. I think a number of them were from my home state of Texas, and they contacted uh, then Governor Bush for assistance. We contacted, uh, police doesn't have a Navy, it has a Coast Guard. We contacted the police and Coast Guard, and they basically told us, listen, we will try to help these students get to the mainland, but if the if the hurricane is of such uh, intensity, they're just gonna, they're just going to have to you know hang in there, and it was pretty dicey for about thirty to forty uh, of our young Americans. Uh, later, I met with them. They finally did get off. Of, I think it was uh, Key Cocker or Ambergris Key. Uh, suffice it to say, they they were pretty stressed out. But we did help many Americans uh, get on plane flights. Uh, back to the States. Uh, I, were, I was in Jamaica during Hurricane Andrew. That was no picnic. Um, so, the, the, like I said, it's very, it's very difficult to answer the question. The American officers will hustle as best as they can. But in some circumstances, for example, if, uh, if uh, there's another Hezbollah-Israel um, war, uh, we have many, many Americans and Arab Americans that live in Lebanon. And during the conflict right. back in the summer of 206, the consular officers and the entire embassy worked diligently to try to get them to the airport or on, on uh, ships to get out, out of the country. It wasn't that simple. That's a great example, actually, both of them, because I had something like civil unrest in my mind when I asked the question, but natural disasters happen with even less warning very often, especially in the case of an earthquake or something like that. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a that's a great response because it does show the, the challenges and the, you know, the nuances and how quickly things can happen. Um, I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, clips of my former student, Catherine, who uh, gave rise to some of these questions and actually uh, gave rise to, to having this topic on the program today. She is living in Guatemala. And uh, so Catherine, shout out to you. <laughs> and uh, that is, <laughs> I think that is important for, for people to know because things can happen when they're traveling abroad. And uh, I think that uh, sometimes they have the idea that, you know, the American embassy staff will just, you know, save them magically. And, um, you know, it is good to be mindful that there are logistical restrictions to that. Well, doctor, let me so give you, you. Uh, another tough cases that officers handle. Um, we've had unscrupulous men married to American women who have taken their children uh, back to Iran, back to Saudi Arabia, back to Colombia, back to the Netherlands, you name it, uh, without the consent typically of the mother. And uh -huh. American officers, particularly those working American citizen services, um, will try to work with the authorities uh, and uh, ensure that the mother, I, I say the mother because it's typically the male that that is involved in the in these kidnap kidnappings of their own children. But that's another touchy situation. And sometimes, and I had one or two instances in Morocco, not involving Moroccan men, but where the um, husband uh, convinced his wife uh, to fly with him and the children to Morocco on vacation and then absconded with the kids. And so I quickly contacted counterparts in the countries that we believed that the male took the children to, but we still have to rely on the local government agencies to actually, um, I guess, comply with the Hague Act on, on abduction of, of children. But these are very tough situations. I have to say to you, many times, uh, Americans are under the impression that we can just go into a government authority and, and uh -huh. say, hey, you know, uh, get these kids and return them to their mother. 
we do do that, but it doesn't mean that the person or the agency is going to follow through just because we ask them to. Well, on a related note, actually, that, that came to mind, um, you know, Americans are used to thinking and talking about our rights, um, but it's, it's likewise important to know that um, people's constitutional rights end at the borders of the U.S., and if they are in another country and somehow have a legal problem, uh, State Department officials can basically, I think, uh, do what you just said, try to advocate to the government, but you can't magically fix things. Is that right? That's exactly right. But but if officers from uh, the Consul General and the Ambassador and the Deputy Chief of Mission, the Vice Ambassador and others uh, make the connections that are necessary, sometimes um, we're able to use friendly persuasion and, con and convince the authorities that it's really in their national interests or the interests of the community or the city or, or the province to work with us. Uh, likewise, they're going to come back and want us to assist them in, in various uh, touchy situations. Uh, but it is incumbent upon the American officer. And this is why I think we need more people from Kentucky and Indiana and Texas and Ohio and uh, Great Plains to, to be members of the Foreign Service. Um, the Foreign Service, and I think the, the, and I don't mean just the State Department, but in general, is really dominated by um, uh, graduates of the mid the top mid-Atlantic schools and the universities in, in Washington, D.C. And even though there's been a push for ethnic uh, and, and uh, other diversity in the State Department, um, I'll give you a concrete example. In my 27-year career, I worked with one officer from New Mexico, one officer from South Dakota, one officer from Montana. And I think uh, having folks that are kind of down home, so to speak, uh, at times would really be effective for us because sometimes you just have to, you know, chum up to a, a person and say, listen, you know, if this was your child and your spouse took the youngster from your home and your family, how would you feel? You know, we're, we're simply asking you to um, at least uh, meet us halfway on this. We understand the father has rights or if, if the woman has absconded with the children that she has rights, but so does the other parent. And by that kind of, um, soft coaxing, occasionally we're able to score some victories for our fellow Americans. So George, let, let me kind of follow up on that. That, that Again, you, you stress that this is one of the reasons why we need embassies in all of, all of our, all the countries across, across the globe in terms to provide these very important services. So if one of our students wants to be a member of the State Department, wants to serve as a foreign service officer, can you briefly, just, just briefly, maybe talk about how that process of how one becomes a member of the, a foreign service officer? Gladly. First and foremost is a written exam. And the written exam uh, has two major components. One, uh, dealing with all manner of social science questions. And so I would highly encourage uh, a young scholar, uh, whether you're a student or gene student, to try, try to read The Economist every week. That, that's, that's a very thorough magazine to keep up on current events and uh, reading uh, you know, current history and uh, similar publications. Secondly, and this is what usually, uh, um, where students usually fail, that there's a very difficult English portion. And they, a, a, a competitive candidate has to be very articulate and really uh, be able to write well. And in fact, there are some writing exercises. 
Then you go to an oral round where you're doing a variety of role-playing exercises. And typically at the end of the oral, uh, the oral uh, uh, examination, um, the uh, examiners will tell the young person whether he or she is probably going to go to the third round, which would include a security background check and um, also a, a health examination. It's been my experience that uh, really uh, stellar officers have almost always fit this. They've either been in the Peace Corps or worked for AID or perhaps an international agency uh, or, or a faith-based group. Uh, I've, I've, it's not surprising that we have a lot of young uh, Mormons in the Foreign Service. Uh, they've lived and worked overseas during their, their uh, period of uh, when, they, when they do their testimonial. Uh, many of them are very good at foreign languages, uh, and they've had experience. Likewise, I've met uh, kids or young adults who were part of Baptist missions, let's say, two places like Guatemala or Honduras. Uh, they speak uh, very good Spanish. Uh, they're comfortable with people from all walks of life. So it's not just about uh, being smart, but also having a, a, a flair for wanting to live overseas and a sensitivity to, to other people and an interest in other people. So again, to repeat myself, there's a written exam, an oral exam, a security background check, and a health exam. And uh, also, I would encourage your students to, to tap onto www.state.jobs, which uh, frequently uh, will make announcements not only of jobs uh, overseas, but also within the State Department. We have lots of civil servants, uh, civil service uh, positions, and frequently those jobs, Cliff, allow for for uh, tours overseas as well. Okay, that's fascinating. Well, what? Let's say someone goes through this process. Are there certain career tracks within uh, the foreign service? Exactly, and in fact, the written exam will go over those career tracks. We have political officers, economic officers, cultural officers, management officers, or administrative officers. Uh, public affairs officers, uh, and of course, consular officers, the ones that not only uh, scrutinize people for visas, but again, provide uh, uh, guidance and assistance to American citizen services. All those career tracks, there are questions related to them on the written exam, and frequently, even in the oral exam, um, the examiners will ask a person, in such and such a situation, what would you do? So there's not only discussion of... Uh, um, uh, do we have any options with respect to Putin and the Crimea, or is it a done deal? You know, so you'll have these heavyweight kind of political questions like that. But sometimes it'll be very, I'll give you a simple example. I'll never forget it. The, the examiners asked me, George, um, the ambassador's son was caught using dope, and you're the management officer. What would you do? <laughs> and I gave uh, a certain answer, and then. Uh, <laughs> They asked me, well, that's great, George. What if he, what if he got caught the second time? And I said, I'd ship his hiney home. And they all kind of looked at me a little bit astonished. And I said, because otherwise you're creating a bad precedent. That if it's one thing to cut the ambassador or any other youth uh, slack on you know, one indiscretion. We all, we all mess up on occasion. But if, if uh, the ambassador's son or daughter gets cut slack a second or third time, this is going to create bad morale. And that's exactly the answer I gave. So there's a lot of what if questions and um, you can't really study for them. And that's why I say that, that folks, uh, young adults who have uh, been overseas or in the military or in the Peace Corps or on a uh, uh, 
faith-related uh, overseas trip tend to do much better in the orals uh, because they've had actual experience. That's interesting. Let me kind of yeah. follow up another question here. Um, living abroad in an embassy in a different country, you were married with family. Tell us about some of the uh, advantages or even disadvantages of having family living with you abroad in some of these places. Well, the advantage was for my children. Uh, my, I loved my children's uh, birthday parties, particularly in Kenya. We had African kids and Arab kids and Asian kids and kids from all different uh, religious backgrounds. And it was a real delight for me as a dad uh, from, to see my youngsters have friends from all different kinds of backgrounds. And in fact, uh, Cliff, you'll, you'll find this amusing, both as a father and as an educator, my son, Mark, and he was no more than probably five years old in, in preschool, he had some Korean friends. And so he got out Daddy's Globe and he wanted to find out where Korea is. And uh, so he became quite good at geography in part because he had friends from different countries. Uh, the negative, uh, you're away from home. And uh, grandparents missed the youngins. Um, it's sure. freaking difficult for the spouse to get employment. Uh, I, I have seen uh, marriages uh, break up for the spouse, whether male or female, return to the States because he or she just felt inadequate. Um, uh, there are security concerns. My children uh, and the entire family, all of us had to be evacuated when the embassy and the international school in Tunisia was attacked in September uh, 2012. This was at the, uh, during the beginning of the Arab Spring, correct? Very much so. And it was uh, uh, quite, quite candidly, it was really uh, tough for my family. And uh, this is when I was sort of in between jobs and helping in the, in the, as the Maghreb officer in the Bureau of International Labor Affairs. Um, uh, another concern is uh, various diseases. Uh, my wife and I, when we would uh, pick and choose where we wanted to go to, uh, malaria was an important concern. Likewise, the quality of the international school. So these are all matters that one has to take into account with respect to the family. Uh, spousal How much choice? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, like I said, spousal employment, uh, the, how mm -hmm. adequate the school is or not, and of course, health care and, and uh, the particulars to the country, whether we're talking uh, uh, diseases, war, civil strife, you name it. So my last two tours... My family could not go with me, so I was on an unaccompanied tours in Khartoum and in Beirut. How much choice do you actually have in determining where you where you get to go? You've obviously lived in a lot of lived and served in a lot of different places, um, but how much how much say do you have versus uh, the, the State Department? That's a, that's another uh, tough question to answer. At the before the officer's tour concludes, a, a year ahead of time. He or she, depending on their rank and their cone, Cliff, going back to, again, these career tracks, there'll be all manner of openings. And uh, my wife and I, we would individually look at the openings that I was eligible for and then uh, compare our lists. And, and then uh, the officer goes forward and actually uh, pitches to the personnel division and to the geographical or functional bureau what jobs he or she is campaigning for. And we actually have to campaign for the jobs. 
Um, you might say, how's that done? Uh, letters and emails are written to the ambassador or the deputy chief commissioner or the consul general or the political counselor, or econ counselor. And an officer is required basically to pitch herself. She's got to explain why she's the right person for that particular position and country. And um, uh, sometimes you get your first choice. Uh, sometimes you don't. I had two bid lists uh, that literally went down in flames. I didn't get a nibble on any of them. And another time, um, when I got the position in Casablanca as Council for Labor Affairs, it was a very low bid of mine. Uh, I didn't think I had a shot. And I was the number two person. So it's... Um, it's, it's not really a, a roulette show, so to speak, as the officer here, she has to really uh, take a hard look at the openings and then let people know which jobs in particular he or she wants, wants to go after. So one of the things we did notice in terms of, um, in terms of your career is you were really all over the globe in terms of uh, the various countries you served in. And I do know that uh, our, our model is very different than say the British Foreign Service model where quite often they are put in a particular region and they stay in that particular region almost their entire career. Yet uh, we don't seem to do that in the, in the United States. Well, why is that, George? Explain that. Well, in contrast, the, the AID officers do have longer tours and specialized geographically. Uh, one of the arguments is that the, the State Department officer, he or she needs to be very flexible and show that um, that person, that officer can function with, uh, amongst uh, people from different cultures and different political systems. However, we do have area specialists. For myself, uh, it goes back to your earlier question about uh, how did my family and I determine where we wanted to go. Once I did my first couple of tours, it was uh, family considerations were a big part of it. In contrast, younger officers, sometimes they're more daring. They're going to go to uh, Guinea-Bissau or uh, take a tough uh, posting like Haiti in the hopes that then they get rewarded with uh, Paris uh, or go to a, a difficult uh, but important post like Angola or Mozambique. Uh, with the aspiration that later maybe get an assignment to Brazil or Portugal if they're, if they're a Portuguese speaker. So uh, particularly for young adults, uh, it's a great career uh, because uh, some of my younger junior officers flat out told me, we're here in Sudan because we wanted to do a hardship tour. We knew we would make uh, additional money and pay off our college loans. And we are expecting that will be rewarded with the more uh, cushy assignment. And this was true for all of them. They all got assignments to places like Madrid and Berlin and Paris. Jean, you had so, a question? So that does pay off. <laughs> I, I have heard that strategy. So um, are there generally enough people who want those, those tougher locations that um, if you don't, then you get sent there? Because of course, you know, everybody has visions of, you know, the glamorous life in Paris, but uh, somebody does have to be in war zones and, and, you know, tougher places. So is it, does it happen that, you know, people get sent against their will or is that usually not something that happens? Jean, another excellent question. 
There is an effort to have equity uh, within assignments so that uh, although it's not always uh, uh, it's not always maintained. So in, in short, um, officers will kind of frown upon hearing that someone served in Prague and then got got the uh, got the Hague or Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. There, there is a sort of understanding that uh, if, you, if an officer has served, let's say, in Malta, uh, that there's a strong likelihood that uh, she's going to serve in a tougher place the second, the next go around. There is, there is sort of that understanding. However, officers that are able to really pitch themselves well frequently get one sweet assignment after another. But, um, oh, and this you'll find kind of interesting, uh, you know, when we really went full blast into uh, Iraq and into Afghanistan, those were the, the, the two big hardship posts. And so many officers for financial reasons or out of the expectation that they would be rewarded with a sweet assignment somewhere, bid going to um, Iraq and Afghanistan and also Pakistan. Uh, one, again, they wanted uh, a chance to excel. Two, com- uh, danger pay. And three, this notion, wow, if, if I go to Islamabad, uh, maybe I can get something sweet down the line like Rabat or Casablanca. Or, uh, you know, I think you get the idea. Or, or go to Jerusalem. Okay. So, um, but what has happened is so many officers now have served in uh, critically dangerous posts, critical need, what are called critical need posts, CN posts, that the competition for those uh, uh, more um, enjoyable assignments like a Buenos Aires is really, really stout. And so now um, I think I'm correct about this. Officers are more willing to investigate the possibility of going to Zimbabwe or, or uh, Zambia, Lusaka or Tanzania, where they, uh, where an officer can achieve and have uh, he and his family or her and her family can have a fairly enjoyable experience. And it won't be a, a danger post or a post or unaccompanied post. Well, you've served over the years during lots of, uh momentous events historically, and I know you were in Tunisia during the Arab Spring. Would you like to maybe share some of your experiences there? It must have been uh, at the same time exciting, but also frightening as well. Clifford, let me ask you this question. Who led the Arab Spring in Tunisia? You're, you're, you're a political scientist and scholar. Who, who was the uh, Sam Adams or, or Thomas Jefferson of Tunisia? Well, that's a good question, George. You've got me on that one. I can't remember the name, but anyway, or the name. Mohammed was easy. Well, Go this, ahead, this, this is what Mohammed was easy. The, 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 veg, the vegetable seller, he self-immolated. That's, that's right. right. So, so he he got the thing going in December of uh, two eleven with his um, self-immolation. That's what we remember. We don't remember the name, but we remember that obviously. But the astonishing thing is, it was a mass uprising. And uh, led first and foremost by young people, but also the business uh, sector joined in because it was tired of Ben Ali and his family uh, ripping uh, its members off. Uh, The lawyers joined in, the trade unions, the uh, what was called Utica, the union of basically the the business federation. It was a mass uprising. So this, this did include much of the business community. 
Corruption, one, one thing we don't, I think, appreciate enough in the United States and particularly in Washington is how much uh, of our efforts and the efforts of other Democrats, uh, Democrats from winning the sort of democratic uh, systems in these countries is undermined by corruption. Could you uh, explain people, that a little bit? People told me that the fundamental reason for the uprising in Tunisia and also in Libya and in Egypt is that uh, folks were just tired of being hit on. Uh, that uh, the okay. people in power uh, used their positions not to uh, promote the well-being of society or democratic reform or justice or any of those things, but as a means of ingratiating themselves. And I think the average American would be startled. Um, and let me give you a quick example from Morocco days. My wife and I loved the Moroccan people. We had many Moroccan friends. And one of her dearest friends, Hidia, I asked one morning over coffee, I said, Hidia, your, your people are, are wonderful people, but what's with the terrible driving? People just disobey with impunity uh, the rules of the road. And she said, George, you have no idea what's going on out there, do you? And I said, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> she said the average person, regardless of whether he or she drives in a safe and appropriate manner, is going to get whistled. The cops, the street cops will whistle the person down and wave them down. And then proceed to tell the lady, listen, you know, I really haven't had my breakfast this morning. Can you help me out with that? Now, the driver, she has to contemplate, okay, I either have to fork over five bucks and get on my way to work, or I'm going to demand that he write a ticket, and that's going to eat up some time to go to the city courthouse and complain, right? But she knows that if she asks for the ticket and then disputes it, the agent, the clerk in the cowhouse will say, well, George Aldridge hasn't shown up just yet, man. Why don't you have a seat? So she waits, and she waits, and she realizes that Nothing's going to happen. So she goes back up to the clerk and says, has the judge showed up yet? Well, he's preoccupied with things, but uh, I can take care of that for you if you can help me out a little bit. That's interesting. So if you look at, say, U.S. US policy in terms of promoting uh, the forms of democracy, elections and things like that, are you saying perhaps where we're missing uh, some of the, perhaps there should be a, a refocus of our policy in that respect. What do you think? And, and, and I will give credit both to, to uh, the Bush Jr. people and the Obama people. There was a recognition that promoting civil society, promoting uh, the business sector, labor unions, human rights groups, uh, educators like yourself, uh, increasing the Fulbright program, developing the Middle East Partnership Initiative program, uh, the uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation program. All these are basically tools in which we're trying to promote good governance. Um, as people explain to me in Kenya and in, in Lebanon, Tunisia and Morocco and elsewhere in Sudan, it doesn't matter how a person gets into power, she's going to use her position to ingratiate herself. We don't trust people. Uh, we have, and in fact, uh, folks in Indiana might be amused when I say this, but I truly believe that the average person in Sudan or Kenya or Ethiopia is a tea partier. They see the government as an intrusion. The government agent, one, 
will jack up your taxes. To get any kind of service, there's bakshish, you gotta, there's got to be a payoff. And of course, your sons and daughters are pulled into conflicts and wars and military service that uh, the average person has no idea what's going on. So what, what people want is good governance. Um, uh, and you might say, George, give, give us an example of where we're working on this. And that is e-payments. So that now that if you need a license, let's say your, your son uh, or your daughter is getting her driver's license again. So the normal fee is, is let's say, $100 to keep it simple. Rather than go and have to see someone at the tax assessor collector's office who's going to explain to her, oh, my young lady, uh, we can't get to, get it for you today. But, uh, oh, by the way, if you if, if shell right. out 20 bucks, I'll have it ready for you in 10 minutes. Right. The e-system allows then the citizen to pay the fee and get the license or whatever he or she needs uh, without having to go through an intermediary. So this has been one of the one of the campaigns. But in, in general, uh, there was a recognition, uh, I think, once we saw that things weren't going so well in Iraq, that we needed to promote civil society. We needed to promote actors within uh, local government uh, at the community level uh, to inspire young people. Uh, a sense of public service. Public service, uh, that this was the way to go and that our mistake, however we're all meaning, was this notion we could have regime change from above and uh, open uh, democratic societies presto punto. I think that's a big deal. I think that you're right, that I think when many people hear about corruption or think about corruption um, in other countries, they think, you know, the big companies paying, you know, kickbacks to government officials for, you know, this contract or that contract to build this highway, build that dam, whatever. But this kind of corruption that you're talking about is endemic, and it's something that affects the daily lives of people, I mean, literally on a daily basis. If you're getting pulled over in your car or if you're walking down a sidewalk and a police officer stops you and says, you know, show me your ID or your papers. And, you know, you can either move along through your day by, you know, forking over $5 for a bribe or you can stand there for, you know, three hours. What are you going to do? Um, I think that a lot of people don't realize just how much that can affect the, the very basic daily lives of people and that that does need to be, uh, you know, a focus of, of good governance. Good governance, governance good, go good governance is the key. And let me share one quick story with you. Uh, uh, um, one of my drivers one time in Khartoum, we drove by a, a relatively pleasant villa, and there was one or two SUVs uh, outside, parked uh, outside of it. And he says, you know, that guy there wasn't a very good minister. And I said, who was that? Well, I think that was the minister of education's house there. And why do you say he wasn't a very good minister? Yeah, well, he's living in the same house. And I think he's got one additional SUV. Otherwise, uh, he's living the same lifestyle he had before he was in government. Isn't that a sad commentary? That speaks volumes. Just being cynical, but but that reflected the attitude of people in Sudan. In fact, Christians there, Coptic Christians, would tell me, George, we wish we had an Islamic government. Right now, we have a kleptocracy here, uh, where uh, you have to hide your wealth. Because every and any government official is going to try to rip you off. And in fact, there was a wonderful, uh, there was a wonderful uh, Tex-Mex place not too far from where we all lived. 
And the young uh, entrepreneur there uh, was uh, a Sudanese American guy. And he said, George, I have to close up. I have to close up. I, I cannot deal with being hit up as much as I am every single day. And of course, well, part of that was what is, go ahead, sorry. And, and he said that, that he was threatened all the time, absolutely threatened that if he didn't fork out dinero, that, you know, he wouldn't get his license or he wouldn't uh, be allowed to have, uh, let's say, a birthday party or, or serve women without their husbands and all this nonsense. And that's one of the things that, that finally broke Mohammed al-Bouazizi in Tunisia, that, who we just talked about. You know, the young, the young vegetable seller is that he was getting harassed by the police and, you know, demanded for bribes. And, you know, he just got set up. Um, so, yeah, that can we can we see that in a lot of places and sometimes, you know, with explosive results. Boy, you couldn't you couldn't have said, Gene, you could not have articulated that any better. Um, uh, like I said, I think I think we're on the right track now. I, I hope the current administration recognizes that the various programs we have promoting youth, uh, women, young entrepreneurs, educators like yourselves, the various exchange programs that we can't expect quick results, but we are developing uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations using uh, the tax dollars of folks in Indiana and Kentucky, we are developing cadres of men and women, particularly young men and women and educated people and business folks and labor union leaders and artists who are one, committed to uh, democratic reform, uh, justice and fair play in their society and who are well predispositioned toward the United States who even if they have qualms about our policies, let's say dealing with Israel-Palestine or the Iraq invasion, they're, they're open about that. But they will also say, but thanks to the American taxpayer, I've been able to go on to an exchange program or, or, or to a Leaders for Democracy Fellowship program in the States, and I've met wonderful Americans or an inter international visitors leadership program. And thanks to the Americans, um, I, I got to spend, in fact, I just, before I left the embassy, uh, and I just heard from her, uh, a young Shiite woman from South Lebanon just went to the United States on an inter international visitors leadership program. Now, now we have a young aspiring woman in South Lebanon who has made American friends, who's been exposed to the United States, and who has a more nuanced feeling about our country, even if she still and her family still are very skeptical about our treatment towards, let's see, Shiites in Lebanon or, or Iran. At least we, we have someone who's listening to us now. And these people really, in many ways, are the best spokespeople, spokespersons for America, are they not? Yeah. Clifford, I, I want to, this is, a, I'll make this example a really short one. There's an Islamist labor union in Morocco. Um, I encouraged its secretary general and three members of its executive board to go to the United States on an inter international visitors leadership program. Folks in the embassy thought I was foolish, to put it bluntly. Hmm. The gentlemen, the gen it was four men, they come back and they, they, they were raving about the United States, saying how uh, wonderful their reception had been. They had met with uh, Arab Americans and Jewish Americans and regular folk and labor union leaders and everyone was so kind to them met with business people and academics, and they said, gosh, you know, it was not, and this was shortly after Abu Ghraib. 
this was like wow. in 2004, 2005, shortly after Abu Ghraib. So you wow. can imagine these folks were pretty down on the United States. And they said, man, uh -huh. we couldn't believe how neighborly people are. Now, but the story gets better. Before, they would never meet me at the consulate. There was a, a, a library called Dar America. It was sort of like the American Cultural Center they would meet. And, and I get a call from the Secretary General's aide, and he says, the Secretary General would like to see you, George. And I'd say, fine. Typical place. He says, no, he, he wants to come to the consulate. This was, again, <laughs> kind of like the wow. middle zone, right? So <laughs> the Secretary General comes, and he says, George, I have an important thing to talk to you about. I said, oh, no, something. go ahead, sir. And he explains to me that he wants his son to study in the United States. Now, this is a man who, a year earlier, America was the great Satan, right? He wants his son to study in the United States. And I said, Aklin, I said, that's wonderful news. I said, where do you want your son to go? And he looked at me, George, I want my son to go to Boston College. Oh, wow. I said, Habibi, you said Boston College? <laughs> it's a Catholic school. Yes. <laughs> the people there go the straight path. I want my son to go to BC. Huh? A few weeks later, I met his son. He spoke impeccable English. I was, I was astonished. And I, I knew the young man uh, had a very good chance of going there. But, but think about this for a minute. I used some of your tax dollars to send labor union leaders of an Islamist anti-American labor union to the United States and the end result was the secretary general of that labor union decided he wanted his son to study at a Catholic college in our country. I feel personally good about the use of my tax money going for that. I'll say that. That's so an investment. That is a tremendous investment. And, and I would say that, you know, I, I like any officer, I had a lot of accomplishments and a few setbacks, but, the one that still energizes me is that episode because folks, again, in the consulate and in the embassy thought I was doing a foolhardy thing. And I, I just thought I trusted my fellow Americans that they would be receptive to these four men and show them the full picture of our country and its society. That, 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 that's a wonderful story to hear. And I think those that are listening to us, uh, uh, like Gene and I both are, are this is this is this is what we should be doing abroad. Uh, let me ask you another question, George. Another area we can talk about. You served under different presidents: the elder Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush Jr., President Obama, and even under President Trump. And each one comes in with different secretaries of state, and I'm sure. Each have a little different way of doing things uh, beyond just policy wise. Could you maybe uh, talk about some of the experiences under each one and maybe illustrate if there are some differences you can you can point out? Wow. Intriguing <laughs> question. Under uh, President Bush Sr., um, he had a tremendous secretary of state in Baker. And uh, uh, I think that Baker and him were on the right track in trying to promote multilateralism where the United States was not going to have to be big brother and intervene everywhere and anywhere to promote uh, peace and justice and stability. Obviously easier said than done, but I think uh, President Bush Sr. Uh, even 
with the Iraq and uh, not the Iraq invasion, but the expulsion of uh, the Iraqis from Kuwait, understood that our country just can't go in on these things alone. With respect to President Clinton, got to give the man and his administration tremendously high marks for uh, getting Arafat and Rabin on the White House lawn. Yes. I mean, that was an amazing accomplishment. Um, I don't know if he or years earlier, President Carter will get the full credit as, as to how um, meaningful that was. Unfortunately, Rabin's assassination, in my personal view, just temporarily... <laughs> hopefully temporarily wrecked things. But had he not been assassinated, I think we wouldn't be discussing the Palestine issue right now. I think uh, there would have been uh, some sort of reasonable land sharing agreement that would have evolved. But uh, you got to give President Clinton uh, great, great marks on that. Um, Bosnia. You know, one of the most unpleasant periods, and, I, and I'll share this with your listeners, was during the Bosnia and Rwanda, um, I'll just say genocides. I mean, there, there was just, uh, in our lifetime, if you had told me there was going to be a lot of concentration camps again in Europe, and ethnic cleansing in Europe, like we hadn't seen since uh, the Armenian expulsion, Clifford, I would have never believed it. Mm -hmm. I agree with you there. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, for the third time in the 20th century, the Europeans uh, dropped the ball and depended on young men and women in New Albany and in Louisville uh, and Terry Holt and others to come to the rescue. But, but let me share this story with you. I was at a kind of a do-gooder function for uh, Bosnian refugees one time, and the deputy chief of mission of the Ghanaian embassy comes up to me, and I'm a second-tour officer. I'm a nobody. And he says... George, y'all got to do something. And I said, Habibi, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, the bloodletting in Rwanda, only the United States can stop it. And I turned to him and I said, well, yeah, but what about imperialism and neo-imperialism and military interventionism? And, you know, we Americans, we're kind of not really good on military occupation. Uh, sometimes we, uh, you know, mess up and shoot the wrong people. It happens. And he used... A profanity and he said basically blank that and i hope all the listeners and students hear this one and then he said something i will never forget he said george if you americans don't do it in other words reestablish no it, it no one else will and it won't get done now mind you this was a black african deputy ambassador telling me that we were just like uh, uh um uh, Secretary Albright said that we were the country that had the fortitude and the resolve to go into these places. Now, whether we should or not is a question for the American people to debate. Right. But I think it, it's both alarming and humbling to think uh, when that took place that a foreign diplomat believed that if we didn't intervene, the bloodletting wouldn't stop. Now, the question mark again, and this was a question mark for, for the Clinton administration, and in my own candid opinion, I think it kind of failed, but it's easy for me to say that as a suit and tie guy. I wasn't sending my son to Rwanda or my son to Bosnia or Kosovo, right? Um, but uh, we, we have to somehow really sit back and think, why does it fall onto us, and can it not be done better? 
So that, that was the Clinton administrations. Kosovo, Bosnia, Palestine, um, Rwanda, that was, that was a tough bevy of international crises that, um, uh, frankly, the international community, I think, failed, just like it's failing now in Syria. Hmm. Um, whether we want to criticize President Trump or President Obama for being uh, cautious, I don't. I think that that's a hornet's nest. It's the end result of uh, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. Um, we're seeing, you know, last year was the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. Yes. 2017 was the 100th anniversary of Sykes-Picot, which unfortunately we're not analyzing enough. And the aftermath of the failures of the San Marino, San Remo uh, conference and what was the Treaty of Sivray, uh, uh, we, we don't pay enough attention to what happened shortly after World War I because the, the blowups we're seeing are, are in part tied to the really bad decisions that the British and the French made that are still having repercussions. Um, now, that isn't to absolve the people themselves. Uh, the, sect the sectarianism that is plaguing Iraq and Lebanon and, and Syria is homegrown. And uh, the Syrian people, the Lebanese people, the Iraqi people, Kurds and Arabs and Armenians and others have to work things out. But we need to be there for them. Now, how we can come up with mechanisms to help them resolve their differences, I don't know. But it shouldn't just fall onto us. I mean, we, I, I think people in the heartland that are critical of the UN have a point. The United Nations needs to be more diligent in, in getting uh, these disparate groups together and saying, listen, yes, the French and the British did you all wrong and drew up borders that were just asinine. But you're either going to have to redraw the borders or learn to have a pluralist society. And as I mentioned to you one time in a discussion, Cliff, we come from an odd country. We and the Canadians and the Australians, we, we have pluralism. And even though our country has had the heartache and the heartbreak of, of, uh, of black-white strife, racial strife, praise the Lord, I don't say that lightly, we have been uh, immune from the kind of sectarian, religious, ethnic, linguistic strife that has plagued uh, not only the Middle East, but places like Yugoslavia. The world, yes. Yeah. Hmm. So, so George so I, um, I, think, uh, I would ahead, give the last, last two administrations a bit of a break in saying that um, uh, these tough conflicts we, we need to do some imaginative thinking but it's not only us the international community has to be more involved okay um, so what is it like when you're um, in, you, when you have to advocate a position, you know, on behalf of an, an administration that you do not personally agree with? Yes. What do you? What's that like? See, that's an easy one. <laughs> and I, and I've, I've explained it. I've explained Finally. it to, to, to uh, my junior officers. Um, let me think of one. Uh, okay, let's say let's say the the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Right. Say 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 I'm not uh, keen on that one. I'm not representing George Aldrich. I'm representing our country and the Trump administration. And I would say that the president 
And our foreign minister, Secretary Tillerson and his team have decided that in, in congruence with our Congress, we are moving our embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing Jerusalem as the nation's, as Israel's national capital. Now, say I'm in Tunisia. Obviously, aside from making that demarche, I want to ask the Tunisian what he or she thinks of this. I'm going to ask people what they think of it. So uh, it's so it's not what I think. It's do I elicit the points of view, legitimate points of view of people, both the suit and tie crowd, people on the streets, in the souks, in the mosques, in the churches, you name it. That's the officer's duty. He or she needs to make the presentation on behalf of our country and our government and then do the slug work of getting reactions, finding out. Uh, there's Here in Luxembourg, there's all kinds of reactions to, to Trump's announcement on, on the tariffs. And sure. A lot of negative reaction here. I would hope that the embassy is taking bits and pieces of reaction in the business community, in the banking community, politicians, average folks, people buying Harley Davidsons, you name it. And by the way, there is a big Harley Davidson shop here. That's the <laughs> officer's responsibility. Um, is the officer, is he or she able to provide in a commentary their own perspective? Definitely, definitely. But our job is to enunciate our government's position and to solicit and elicit the reaction of others so that people in Washington know what people are thinking from all walks. And not just, and this is where we messed up in Iran. We typically only got the palace reaction to things. Uh, officers need to get on the streets, so to speak, and chat and chew with people. But, the, but Gene, so that's really not a tough one. In fact, uh, my wife uh, knows I'm, I'm uh, pretty much pro-Arab on most issues. And so she said, well, how do you go about when you know our position is, is pro-Israel on this one? I said, well, I just deliver the mail. Mm -hmm. But my job is to get the reaction. Right. Now, if I think the position mm -hmm. is wise, uh, I can enunciate that. But that's, that's not my job. George, we're getting towards Thank the end of, our, end of our show here. Can I ask you a question? Looking back at your career and, you know, be a little self-reflection there. Um, what do you what are, what are the what are when you look back what what rewards did you get from your career and how how would you might convey that, that those rewards to someone that uh, that may want to be in the state department one of our students It was like secretary Tillerson said the other day in his adios mission a message that he profoundly uh, appreciated serving our country and representing our country um you know you and Gene and your colleagues, you're preparing the next generations of young leaders, of young business people, uh, of young civil society activists and attorneys and doctors. You're, you're, you're in the molding business. For me, it's representation. To be able uh, for a big chunk of my life to represent our country, to represent you and your and the state and family and Gene and her family and friends, um, yeah, it, it was a head rush. Uh, it, 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 it was very gratifying. And, and again, on many occasion, uh, I had the opportunity to help fellow Americans 
and folks from the particular country. And I'll leave with one last story that uh, means a lot to me. Um, when I, my first tour, a young child came in with a horrific um, a tumor in her mouth, horrific tumor. And uh, I contacted people at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, which has uh, been heavily supported by the Arab American community and founded by Danny Thomas and Richard Shadiak. And uh, with the assistance of the Rotary Club in Kingston, this child and her mother were, were sent to the States. Now to finish the story, a few months later, I'm working in a different part of the consulate. And one of my assistants says, so-and-so wants to see you and they want to see you now. Now it was the end of the day and I was in a rush to get home and eat, relax and kick back. So I wasn't exactly in the, the best frame of mind. And this young Jamaican couple come up with this incredibly beautiful child. And she's got a bow on her hair and uh, they're smiling. And, and, and I saw a little crease on her cheek and I realized this was the child I had sent to the States to have the tumor removed. Wow. Wow. And the end of the story is we have these windows, right? And, and there's hardly any room other than the slip papers under the window. So what this young couple brought me was a towel. <laughs> and I'll never forget it because they wanted to bring me a gift. And so they knew, okay, we can't slip anything underneath the window, but maybe this towel will work. Clifford, that was one of the most loveliest gifts I've ever had in my life, was this towel from a couple who, thanks to one of our children's hospitals, their little girl today is probably an adult of about 30 years old. So those are the kind That's of amazing. instances that uh, uh, I, I look back with so, such great joy that um, even though my career wasn't exactly stellar, I did some stellar things for our country, our people, and for others as well. George, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. It's been a lot, you know, you and I chat over the years, but it's been a while since I've actually got to see you over the computer here. But uh, I know our listeners, our students are, are very impressed with your stories, and hopefully maybe some of our students will follow in your footsteps. Um, George, thank you very, very much today. Thank um, you. Let me also say to our listeners, um, next week uh, we will return and we're going to visit uh, Northern Ireland. We're going to look at Brexit and, um, uh, the, and uh, the question of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And our chancellor, uh, who is from Northern Ireland, will be on our show. So please be with us. Again, this is the International Power Hour. I'm Chris Dayton and my colleague and co-host Gene Abshire, and we thank you for being with us. George, once again, thank you very, very much. Always great to see you and talk to you. Thank you very much. It's good to be with the Hoosiers again. You're listening to the best college radio station, Horizon Radio, broadcasting from Indiana University Southeast, New Albany.